Club Podcast. This week, behind the scenes at Jaguar Specialist Tom Lenthal, what Ford have in common with Jaguar, and what the future of the classic car world might hold. JECpodcast.com Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're going to tell the story of one of our Jaguar specialists. And uh, it's wonderful to go around and meet the trade here on the podcast, get behind the scenes in some of the workshops. Uh, You heard our earlier interview with Andy Waters in this season of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. But this week, Tom Lenthal. Hiya, Tom. Yeah, hi Wayne, how you doing? All right? I'm very good and a happy new year to you because yes. here we are talking at the beginning of 2023. So uh, big plans ahead for the next 12 months? Oh yeah, there's lots of stuff in the pipeline and um, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, I'm sure we're already very busy trying to get stuff together. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's going to be an exciting year, I'm sure. That's the future. Let's yes. go back to the past and where it all began for you, Tom. So I'll take you back to the very, very beginning. Uh, were you always interested in cars? Were you always interested in Jaguars? Was it in the family? Where did this passion and interest come from initially? We didn't start out with cars. My family or my immediate family weren't really car people, but for some reason I was uh, always drawn to engines and motors, predominantly from a two-wheel perspective. So. And uh, I'd blame that largely down to watching Barry Sheen mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as a young kid. So it started out with two wheels, really. Two wheels from about the age of 10 or 11 years old. And uh, yeah, getting my first motorbike and thrashing it across the woods and not really having the resources or any resources really to get them fixed. And I used to raid my dad's toolbox to uh, mend the motorbike from a very, very young age. And it really, it started there. It's amazing, isn't it, how many of us got into motoring through necessity and got into understanding how engines work and how to fix them through the fact that we were basically skint as youngsters. (laughs) (laughs) It's a real stark reality of it. You know, there was if, if I wanted to go up the woods and ride my motorbike, which I desperately wanted to do. I basically had to work it out for myself and get it, get the get the thing working and get it running. So and that's really you know how it started you know literally a, a diy toolbox and the haynes book of lies as we always like to call it <laughs> yes tap gently with a hammer as they used to yes, say that's it. yeah refer to picture blah 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 yes. <laughs> and uh, uh refitment is the reversal of removal or something like that was a key yeah. phrase wasn't it? Uh, probably one of the most well-written uh, lines in the haynes book <laughs> brilliant so was there like an epiphany moment where you thought actually I'm quite good at fixing this old motorbike of mine. Actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and do this for a job. Did, was it? Was there a moment when you realised you had a bit of a talent for it or was it sort of a slow burn thing? I think initially it was a slow burn thing, but, you know, I genuinely enjoyed it as a teenager. And I'm going to say by the time I was 14, certainly by the time I was 14 years old, um, that was it. You know, I was I wanted to be a mechanic and... I remember going in to see the uh, school careers officer and they said to me, um, you know, what do you want to do, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I told them, they looked through my um, files and they said, well, look, unfortunately you can't be a mechanic because you're, you're colorblind. You won't be able to read wiring diagrams. And I was like, look, you're not, this is not happening. <laughs> this, is, this is what I'm going to do. And that's that. And unfortunately um, I managed to get enough GCSEs to go to technical college and I applied for the mechanics course um, at the technical college and they accepted me. So, uh, and basically away we went. 
Wow. So how has being colourblind then held you back and how have you got round the challenges of it then? Once you get through the first couple of initial fires, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you just, um, most wiring diagrams, particularly with the more modern cars, not so much with the old cars. The old cars are very, um, the wiring diagrams are very simple. You know, there's not actually an awful lot going on there in, in, compared to today's world. Um, and in modern cars, um, everything has a number. So I don't look at wire colours at all. I just look at um, connector numbers, pin numbers, and I, I work it like that. So I just don't even, you know, the colours mean nothing to me. You went through then the sort of standard route in, so I guess a modern apprenticeship or working with a, with a garage yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Well, back then it was, um, it was the, you know, YTS scheme. Mm. And uh, I decided I wanted to do a year's full time at college. So I went off there for a year. And then what they basically did was they said, right, we give you work placements and then hopefully you get a job. And you did uh, 12 months uh, technical college and then uh, two years day release. So I got sent to a BMW garage and a Ford garage and et cetera. And I was just bored. I was so bored. And um, my college lecturer turned around to me and he said, well, I know you like stripping these motorbikes down and sort of I was effectively restoring motorbikes when I was 16 years old. So he said, I know a chap who restores old Jags and he's quite close to you. And I got sent to uh, a chap called Brian Stevens, who was uh, a local restorer, who's still actually going today. And I did some work experience of him and that went really well. And I really enjoyed it. He then gave me a Saturday morning job whilst I was still at college. So then I was, that was when I drove my first E-Type. Wow. Just, we, were on a, we were working on a farm and I had to go and get this E-Type from one of the barns. It was a wreck that we were about to restore. And I remember getting in it and I, I drove it up the farmyard and I put my foot straight to the floor. I thought, I want to know what this thing can do. <laughs> and I'm 16 years old. I've nailed it. And the throttle's jammed wide open. Oh, and I've and I've managed to kill the ignition and stop it, and I just couldn't believe how quick it was. And I thought that no, that was it then. That was oh, this is what I'm doing. So, so the, my mind was made up at that point. But unfortunately, this is we're talking 1990. Recession was coming on. You know, restoration work was dropping off because the prices had dropped, etc. And he turned around to me and said, "I can't offer you a job because we just haven't got enough work." And I was, you know, I was, I was gutted. So I thought to myself, what am I going to do now? Um, so I looked around at other restoration companies and I wrote a few letters and all that sort of stuff. And then I happened to be around a friend's house. And again, we were messing around with motorbikes. He's opened up the garage to get his motorbike out. And there was a Mark II Jag in there, rolling shell in primer. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, that's a bit interesting. What's that all about? So I asked him and he said to me, that belongs to my uncle. And I was like, okay. So, and then I found out that his uncle ran a restoration company. So I knew the family very well. So I went and saw uh, my friend John's mum, a lady called Blanche, wonderful lady. She said, don't worry, Tom, I will get you some work experience with Roland and we'll see what happens. So I said, okay, fine. So I went off to a company called RS Coachworks, which was based in Reading. And I did two weeks work experience. And then unfortunately at the end of it, I got the same deal works a little bit slack, can't give you a job, all that sort of stuff. So, um, and then I went back up to my friend's house and I sat down with Blanche and she said, oh, how did it go? So I said, oh, it's wonderful, but unfortunately you can't give you a job. Can't give me a job rather. And she turned around to me and she goes, don't you worry about that, Thomas. You leave that with me. <laughs> I was like, okay, fine, fair enough. And literally within, I think, 
24 or 48 hours, I had Roland on the phone saying, yeah, you've got a full-time job, don't worry. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a lot to be grateful for uh, from Blanche. So I think if it wasn't for her, it probably I probably would have struggled at the time. But I went and finished off my apprenticeship and subsequently stayed working for RS Coachworks for six years. And that's where I learned my restoration craft. That's fantastic. So it's almost that Jaguars found you rather than you yeah, found no, Jaguars. Definitely. I, I fell in love with Jaguars when I was 16 years old. Hmm. And, you know, there was, that was it then, you know, that was it. This, this is what I'm doing. So, There's yeah. always that moment, isn't there, in everyone's life where they where they notice Jaguars for the first time. Yeah. For me, it was when my dad cleared off to something called Le Mans in 1988. I was too young <laughs> to go with him at the time, and certainly the reasons he was going there, he didn't want a little kiddie along with him, as I now understand well. Um, yeah. But, uh, right. you know, that was the moment listening on his old Grundig shortwave radio, because there was no Radio Le Mans on, online or anything like that to listen to. You had to pick it up on yeah. teletext and shortwave, you know and yeah. just listening to this amazing race and the fact that Jaguar were going to beat Porsche for the first time in like forever and it was all so exciting and from that moment on that was when Jaguar really featured highly for me as well so yeah we all have those moments what are yours listeners uh, to the JEC podcast do let us know if you can share your moment where you realise Jaguar was the best car in the world get in touch with us of course here on the podcast JEC podcast dot com you can use the contact form on there to get in touch with the show at any time you like you can even leave us a voice message so we can drop you in the show you could be like famous and stuff like tom is now um <laughs> continuing with tom lenthal then here on the jc podcast and so now you're getting to the point you've got a bit of experience uh you I've got this background in restoration work, which is far more fulfilling and interesting on a day-to-day -day basis than fixing modern cars, of course. So how was the jump then from where you were then to where you are now with your own business? Well, what really happened, I was working for Roland um, at RS Coachworks and it was, um, it was becoming a little bit repetitive you know, it's another Mark II, it's another E-Type. And I'd pretty much done all of the modifications, the restorations, you know, I, I sort of picked it up quite quickly. And, you know, I was I was building cars, you know, quite successfully, you know, pretty much left on my own devices. So I just got bored, really. Um, and I thought to myself, well, I want to change the scenery, I want to do something else, I want to broaden my knowledge. And I um, saw a job advert in the local paper, for a, a technician at um, HA Fox in Guildford. So I just applied and I went and had an interview and it was it was 1996 and they were just sort of thinking about expanding because we knew we had the introduction of S-Type was, we knew it was coming and they wanted to, they wanted more guys in the workshop. So I basically, I applied for the job, done the interview and I got the job and I was like, great, fantastic. So that was, um, you know, that was my introduction to the main dealer. Mm -hmm. and, and at that point, that was when I really learned about, you know, modern electrics. We had a fantastic uh, works controller who was a bit of an electrical whiz kid and he was really good at teaching all of the guys in the workshop. And uh, yeah, so I seemed to pick the electronics up quite quickly and yeah, and I stayed there until 2001, I think. Um, yeah, 2001 at HA Fox. And then we moved, then I moved over to Swain and Jones of Farnham. And I stayed there until 
2007. So that by this time, you know, I was a you know Jaguar master technician, and I, I felt again I'd felt I'd learned as much as I could learn from being at the main dealer, and fancied um, fancied having a go at it for myself, and you know wanted to wanted to start my own business and dip my toe in and see how that went. Well, as you mentioned there, going a little bit further back there, 1996, yeah. an important moment in Jaguar's technology history because yeah. up until that point, of course, we'd seen the onboard computers arriving in the XJ40 during the late 1980s. They were pretty shaky. They were diagnostics of a sort, but they weren't what we'd recognise as diagnostics model modules today, of course. Um, there were certainly no OBD ports. And, you know, the thing, the technology was still developing through the X300 into the X308. By 1996, of course, Jaguar had rolled out diagnostics across all of their models. So, um, tell us about how you really got involved with that at main dealer level, how it changed the game as a technician, a master technician as you were by then, and, and how you've managed to use that to keep some of those, let's face it, now modern classics on the road. Well, the diagnostics has naturally evolved just like everything has in you, you know, from the computer in your home and the, the computer in your hand, etc. So back in those early days, um, as you say, XJ40, it was very much, um, there was diagnostics. We, uh, PDU was the first one that I really dealt with, which was, a, you know, walk up to it, load the disc, get the engine management system on, and then you plug it in and it would give you information and give you fault codes. But then you were still reverting back to the wiring diagram with your multimeter, which actually was a really good thing because it meant you actually learned how everything worked and you gave you a greater understanding of the functionality of um, systems. Hmm. So that, you know, and that was a good bit of kit, but it was very, very slow and it wasn't, you know, it was a bit, bit cumbersome, you know, but it was early days. Hmm. Then in 98 i'm sure it was 98 we got a bit of kit called wds um which was much more advanced and it was running <laughs> i've actually still got one in the workshop today in fact i've got two of them and um you know by today's standards it seems slow but it runs on windows 98 so that's how i know wow. it was around that sort of era <laughs> and i think that when wds came out uh, it was Worldwide Diagnostic Systems was the acronym from memory. Mm -hmm. And um, that that was a really good bit of kit. Then we were really able to data log. It was handheld. We could plug it in the car. We could drive down the road and we could monitor what all the sensors were doing and really get some good feedback. And you could, you know, if you, you, if you got to learn the system well, you could pretty much, you know, look at the screen and look at all the feedback readings and stuff like that and drive down the road and work out 90% of what's going on. You know, and that, that, that was a brilliant bit of kit. Yeah. But again, you know, technology moved on. You know, by now we're using this with XK8. Well, we could use it with X300, XK8. So the V8s came along. And then as we went further forward, then we ended up with um, IDS, which was a laptop-based uh, system. So no longer did we need to spend loads of money on this super-duper amazing bit of kit. Um, we literally were just loading um, loading software onto laptops, and from there it just got more and more and more advanced. And and today we've continued with that. We have the software that we subscribe to the factory, so um, 
we have all that on laptops now. We have to have interfaces and the guys in the workshop can interrogate and diagnose, you know, using, using that system. And it's very, now it's very, very advanced. Mm. It is a worry, isn't it? For those who own cars, especially from the late nineties, early two thousands, those cars that as I described are becoming modern classics now about yeah. how sustainable the future is for them because you just mentioned there that you're having to run one of the systems on Windows 98. Um, there's, you know, it better when it, it can be put on a laptop because at least, you know, that's you can roll back technology on modern laptops to run it. But when you have the earlier uh, modules where they have to actually have a particular unit that reads them, how sustainable is it into the future keeping this technology alive for example how long are you going to be able to run a windows 98 computer in the workshop what happens when it all falls over do we have something to worry about if we got a modern classic jag no not really i mean there is um more there is equipment out there which i'm going to say is non-factory so aftermarket diagnostics which actually do a really good job mm. and you can do i'm going to say 95 percent of the job that wds does with something that you can go in the shop and buy for sort of, i don't know 100 pounds 150 pounds mm. yeah so i don't that technology will never be lost it will just get transferred onto different machines the reason that i still run wds is because it's focus for that era of car mm. and it although it takes a while to load up it works better and also i'm very very familiar with it so that also helps you know i mean as a, a great example this week we had a, a 96 v12 uh, daimler double six which we've done uh, head gaskets on the electronics were all confused the engine wasn't running right the, the boys downstairs were getting a little bit confused i said hold on a minute I've gone down there, I've put WDS into it. I've literally reconfigured the car with WDS uh, and it started on the button. So there actually wasn't anything wrong with the car at all. It was kind of, it was more like a reboot. It was kind of confusing. WDS does that very well, hmm. but you can still buy equipment today that will do that in the aftermarket sector. So I don't really think that there's a, there's a problem going forward in sustainability of fixing the cars. You've just got to have the right people around you that know how to use the equipment and get the right result. Less of a, a person who's able to stick a tube up the trumpet of an SU and listen to the balance and more of a semi-computer programmer, I guess, in some ways. Again, when you say that, you know, everyone said, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, we're losing the art of um, repairing older vehicles. And, and certainly the guys that train me, like uh, Roland and Brian and people of that ilk, sure, they're either retired or very much cruising towards retirement. But they've passed those skills on to me. I pass those skills on to my team. Those, those skills are still there. You know, they're not they're not dead. They might be in a little bit shorter supply than what they were 20 years ago, but they're certainly still there. Brilliant. Well, it's good to hear, actually. And do you think that same, do you have that same confidence then about newer Jaguars? And I'm talking sort of F-type and, and more recent. Can you see those cars being sustainable as classics in the future? Because ultimately, what you're saying is someone will come up with an aftermarket way of looking after all of those systems within those cars and will be okay. I... I like to think that that's going to be the case. I think the problem that we're going to have going forward with the more later ones is a, as a, an XK8 is a great example. When that first came out, we were like, wow, we've got CAN networks and there's all these computers talking to each other. And we're like, you know, there's there's eight modules on this car that all are linked and it's all very complicated. And, you know, you go to a last of line XJ or a, 
or uh, you know even a modern Range Rover in the same ilk because we do those as well um, they can have up to 60 or 70 modules on them mm. so and they're all networked together and they're all talking to each other in one form or another so I actually think that the computer-based software to be able to go in and interrogate this stuff and fix it is always going to be there right the problem I think we're going to have is absolute people remaking some of this stuff when Jaguar, you know, discontinue it because, you know, it's so complicated. There's so many different variants and there's this, that and the other. I think parts is actually going to be more of an issue than than mm. software to be able to fix it. Yeah, because ultimately making a lump of metal into a different shape is relatively easy. However, building yeah. one of these bespoke computer modules or, you know, yeah. uh, chip-based electronic modules or sensors, that's a different kettle of fish, isn't it, really? Well, it is. It definitely is. I mean, we, we see it now with 80s and 70s cars, um, with some of the certainly with some of the fuel injection things, which we get involved with quite a lot. No one actually remakes an original um, fuel injection ECU for, let's say, a Series 2 V12 XJ is a great example. You know, and when they go wrong, I'm really, I'm down to trying to find a good secondhand unit or we just say, actually, do you know what, let's abandon this and we put on a modern standalone engine management system, which is fine for a car like that. But when you're talking about going forward with, say, something like an F-Type, and then it's got to communicate and talk to lots of other multiple modules, it gets a lot more complicated, a lot more complicated. But I think going forward, you know, some clever bod out there will go, oh, actually, here's a universal thing that we can program it and we can make it all happen. And so, you know, the answers the answers to these questions aren't here today, but as and when they come up, I'm, you know, I like to think that, um, you know, we, we will have the ability to get over it. Well, the key is, of course, these things will happen if there is demand for it. So keep your Jaguars on the road is basically the message. Keep them serviced and keep the demand up. And then ultimately, businesses will come out of your demand for those parts and create them for us to make sure that X-types and S-types and XK8s and XJSs going a little bit further back are all still on the road in future years. I guess uh, that's the situation. And it is amazing, isn't it, that here we are in 2023 and it's easier to get parts for an XK120 launch just after the Second World War than it is an XJS that was launched sort of 30, 40 years ago. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, I can I can get bits for an E-Type in one phone call and deliver the next day. Uh, bits for a, a 1988 uh, V12 XJS, that's a whole different world of pain, you know, or can be. You know, not all of it, but certainly some of it. Yes, I think we should start a new social media campaign. Save our XJSs. That's what we need. That's what we need. Pull together the parts. Well, this is the place to do it. The Jaguar Enthusiast Club, of course. You're listening to the JC Podcast. It's Wayne Scott with you, talking to Tom Lenthal about his story, his journey through working with Jaguars. And here we are today, Tom. Uh, you're in your own business, but I guess it gives you the advantage, the fact that you have that background from the main dealership and, of course, that master technician program that you went through at the dealership that you can now apply retrospectively to your customers cars so for those who've never come across it before explain a little bit about what the jaguar master technician program was how long it took you to go through it and what you learned from it yeah sure i mean the jaguar master technician program i mean it's a little bit different today and the way they do it but back in my day when i was in the main dealer it was something that they did every year so every year we would be 
you know, not everyone had to do it, but you had to sit, basically sit an exam. Um, and it was all about product knowledge and in-depth um, knowledge of um, systems, etc. of uh, of Jaguars. So the initial part of the, um, the phase was you did a you did a, a written exam and then if you did okay at that or you got a certain grade or you came within a, the highest grades within a, an area um, then you were sent off to the uh, regional finals mm-hmm. and then when you did the regional finals that was something that you would then go to um, a workshop or something on those sorts of lines and there could be things there that you'd have to test and you know a car would be have a fault and you'd have to fix it and stuff like that um and then there would be a, a question a, you know q a section and all that sort of stuff and then if you did really well at the uh, regional final then you would end up at the final final and then at the end of that someone would be crowned you know like technician of the year and all that sort of stuff but the, the main point of it was was to help and promote um, technicians to broaden their product knowledge because, you know, product knowledge is king. Mm -hmm. And the more you know about what you're fixing, the easier it is to fix. Mm -hmm. So everyone who went in for it really wanted to make the grade to be a master technician because it also meant that you could bend your boss's ear and get a couple more quid out of him as well. (laughs) Absolutely. I can imagine. It's a bit like the Jaguar mechanics version of the X Factor this is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I can remember being sat there doing, because I was always terrible. Uh, I wasn't very good at the, sitting there doing the quick fire question round. You know, you know, the, what colour wire goes to such and such? Brilliant. Can't you tell? Can't you ask the pin number? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, you know, I always did uh, quite well at the, um, um, the, you know, the individual bit. And then when I did the regional stuff, um, I always featured quite highly in it, but I never actually made it to the final finals, which was a shame. But then they also did a group final, a group um, one. So we'd have one guy from the workshop, one guy out of parts, one guy from sales, et cetera, et cetera. I think there was a team of five of us. And uh, when I was at HA Fox, I think it was 2000 that we'd done it. Um, we did really well in the uh, in the regionals and we got uh, flown out to Copenhagen uh, by Jaguar. And there was about four or five teams of us out there. and. Uh, as a team, we nailed it. We won it. So we were the, you know, we were the, you know, HA Fox that particular year. You know, we won the, we won the group finals, and we, yeah, we were like dealership, you know, cleverest dealership of the year, if you like, at that particular point. It was, mm-hmm. it was quite good. It was a good experience. It was really good. Fantastic. So there's a sort of a mix of uh, on the tools, quick fire questions, and I guess exams as well. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Basically, it, it, you know, it it tested all of your skills. Mm. Let's put it like that. So that and. Uh, you know, but I, I always maintain that doing that, the most, the, the best thing that everyone got out of it, it didn't matter if you're a mechanic or a, a partsman or a salesman, what it was doing was it was it was promoting you to learn product knowledge. And as I keep on saying to all my guys, product knowledge is king. You know, the more you know about your product, the better you can, you know, do your job. And you're a well-qualified uh, team of guys down there because four of you have gone through this program, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. There's um, so yeah, it's, it's one of those things. When I started the business, I started out on my own, and then what you naturally do, what happens is, is you you talk to your colleagues and your friends, and you basically talk them into coming to work for you, don't you? That's what you do. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, you know, some people call it poaching. I don't, you know, it's not not really poaching, is it? You know, but anyway, um, so. You know, I'm very lucky. We've got Adam who uh, works for me now. Adam was my apprentice in 2001 at um, Swain and Jones. Hmm. 
So he came to me when he was 16 years old. I trained him. He then came and worked for me. And so he did, yeah, 10 years in the main dealer. Then he came to work for me in 2011. And he's basically now my right-hand man. He runs, uh, he's the, the service manager in the business. And he's obviously a Jaguar master technician, et cetera, et cetera. And Range Rover, actually. He's got the Range Rover qualification as well. Um, and then we've got Steve Harms, who, worked, who I worked at HA Fox with, uh, back in, he was the apprentice in 96, actually. <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> he now works. I mean, he's a very, very highly qualified, uh, highly qualified technician. And then we've got Conrad, who worked in the main dealer network back in the 80s, but he's more on the old side of the business now. So, yeah, there's there's quite a few guys in here that, um, that have been through that process. And uh, we always sort of chuckle to ourselves because most of the chaps that work for me, have all come from either restoration companies or Jaguar uh, main dealers. And when we sit there and add up the um, years of workshop knowledge and experience there is down the stairs on the workshop floor, we sort of come to the conclusion that we've probably, we've probably got more years of knowledge downstairs than your average main dealer, which is a reflection on our age more than anything else, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and a reflection on the fact that it sounds like every apprentice who walked through the door at your old dealership, you nicked later on in life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I did my, you know, I unashamedly, yeah, recruited them. Yeah, no, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. <laughs> well i mean it's great isn't it you know you've done that sort of that time in the main dealerships through an era of jaguar that are now entering their own moment in history i guess as modern classics you know you're starting to see the s types the x types even the x308s are coming through as classic cars now right the way through x350s now you're starting to see polished up at shows those cars that you would see on the road every day are now entering their phase of being a classic car and it's nice for those people who own those cars and cherish them to bring them to someone who worked on them in period yeah well you know again you know sort of going back to when we started the business in 07 you know those those cars were the stuff that we just did as an everyday thing you know they were coming in for servicing repair etc um and now we're you know now they're more occasional cars you know we do still have quite a few owners that regularly drive you know x100s and all that sort of stuff um but you know they are they, they, they really are cherishing them as classic cars and we're we're treating them you know as um as you know i once did e-types and stuff like that you know in terms of people are actually coming in saying actually do you know what tom i'd really like to repaint it and make it look its best and you know it sits in the garage and it's dehumidified and it's all lovely and all that sort of stuff and that's, that's a great thing to uh to see happen to these cars when i think that i used to sit there in the main dealer you know giving them their pre-delivery inspections when they were brand new where you are now is that you have a mixture of those modern classic people who come to you because they know of your main dealer expertise but yep. also you're doing a lot of restoration work as we'll get to in a future episode because we are going to come down and see you and see what you've done to <laughs> harry metcalf's amazing xj harry's garage fame of course yeah so there's some amazing sort of resto modding going on but also race preparation as well and of course those who listen regularly to the jc podcast will remember the chat that i had with tom in the paddock at mallory park uh, just under a year ago when we were stood next to a track day prepared s-type and a race prepared mark ii so it's a real diverse range of activities that you've got going on in the business so talk us through your average client the average day well yeah we're probably a little bit unusual in that respect for um you know for your average jaguar you know 
uh, garage stroke workshop because obviously because of my restoration background I was never when I started the business I was never going to stop doing that so and obviously there because I then subsequently went to the main dealer we had all that knowledge as well so it just seemed a naturally you know thing to do was to just do everything you know I didn't didn't want to sort of like focus on just doing classics or just doing modern cars so you know there isn't that many workshops that you can go into where there is XK's 120s, 140s, 150s, E-types, Mark IIs, Mark Ones, etc., being worked on. And then on the other side of the workshop, you've got um, F-types and Range Rovers and, you know, X-types, S-types and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, naturally, because of that, you do end up with a completely broad um you know, a variety of, of, of clients. Mm. And that, um, that is really rare, Tom. And I, I flag it because I know from my own personal experience owning X300s, XJ40s, you try mm. and find a garage to go and take those two, to go and get sort of daily servicing done and those average jobs that need doing, you know, the rear suspension bushes need doing and no one wants to touch them. Yeah, it is quite really. a unique mix there. Well, I just, I go on, so we don't do push rod engines. I, you know, that's what I don't do. I'm sort of like XK120 onwards. Mm. One of my little sayings is, is, you know, if it's got a Jaguar badge on it, we do it. You know, and then when people say to me, well, what can you do? And we do everything. You know, it doesn't matter if it's metal work, paint work, um, we get the trim done, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's obviously not everything gets done inside the one workshop. We do outsource a bit of it. Um, you know, like, like the trim work and the paint we don't do on site, um, but we do do the metal work and we do do the full engine rebuilds and the axle rebuilds, um, you know, and then then alongside that, you're getting the guys coming in literally just for a service and, uh, you know, and, and a change of brake pads. But I really... I, I, I love the fact that the guys that come in with their modern cars, when they step into the workshop and they see the other stuff that's going on alongside their service, it it's, it's a really nice thing to see. They, the amount of people that come to the workshop and say, oh, do you mind if we just have a quick look round? And I'm like, yeah, well, as long as you don't disturb them too much, just, you know, <laughs> you know please don't trip over anything, a dent a car, whatever, you know, but we get a lot of that and it's, it's really quite, you know, it's really quite a nice thing that people love to, you know, even though they've just got a modern car, they love to come around and look at all the old cars and see it all happening. Oh, I really enjoy that. It's a great mix and variety of interests that uh, Jaguar enthusiasts have, and we try and reflect that here on the JC podcast as well. And I suppose, you know, it's great to see from, from the racing point of view that you, you're very much involved with that. Um, but also the fact that, as you mentioned there, you're doing all of these restoration skills in-house. So firstly, how easy is it to keep that talent in the business? You mentioned how in short supply it is and how easy is it to recruit talent into the business. And secondly, how are you seeing on the other side of the counter your customers change because one thing we talk a lot about here on the podcast is you know the the age of club members in particular here in the JEC has been getting older every year it's been a challenge to get younger people into historic vehicles in particular how are you seeing that in your customer base and how has it changed over the last few years uh, I think it's just sort of a natural progression really it's um you know, I was, I was talking to you about a Daimler uh, V12 that we've just done. That's a 96 car. Uh, it was sent to us on the back of a low loader. Never spoke to the, sorry, never did speak to the owner. Didn't, I've never met the owner. He's coming to collect it next week. 
I was on the phone to him uh, yesterday um, and he told me he was only 34 years old. I couldn't believe it. Wow. And I thought that was, I thought, brilliant. You know, there's a, and he was telling me how much he loved his, um, how much he loved his Daimler. I've just done a XJS fuel injection conversion on a V12 um, for a guy that's 27, 28 years old. Mm. Um, so they, it's, it's a bit of a slow burner with the younger guys, mainly probably, I guess, because of the cost, you know I mean? Because, running some of these more bigger cars and older cars is expensive. But one thing I have noticed is that when we get the chaps coming in that have, you know, done well for themselves or whatever, and they've, I don't know, let's say they're between 40 and 55, you know, and they come in and they look at the older cars. They, it, it does, you know, it, it, it inspires them. And, you know, so at one point I would say, you know, my average um, E-type owner in today's world would probably be between, I don't know, 65 and 75 years old you know now i'm seeing guys in their 50s and mid 40s actually going actually do you know this is this is amazing you know historical car effectively it's so iconic you know and they and they are getting into them so it, it, it's difficult it is really difficult to spark the um you know the it, spark the interest and inspire you know younger people into into the market but you know that's our job to you know to try and try and do that and make people see how much fun they can be mm-hmm. you know and we're doing that through stuff like this podcast and with the help of a few YouTubers you know I mean <laughs> well we're doing we're doing um, a car for a, a guy called Auto Alex who's a YouTuber and I think yeah. Alex is thirty seven years old um, you know he's in his first Jag first supercharged Jag and we're just sorting that out and um, yeah and he loves it. You know, he's bought himself a flat cap and everything. You know, he's a <laughs> so so yeah, they are going to come through. And I think with those guys, the cars aren't going to go away, are they? The cars are no. always going to be there. And you know, we are sort of um, you know, and it's it's our it's our job to look after them and, and make people realise how much they can be enjoyed. And I think once if you say if you put bums in seats, mm. a bit like the uh, you know the Jag Enthusiast Club have done with um, you know their youth side of uh, things. You know, yep. particularly with the track days and stuff like that. I think they did a, a young person's track day not that long ago, didn't they? Yep. And uh, yeah, they got some got the younger generation in there and all that sort of yep. thing. And I, I think that's the way forward. We need to we need to encourage and get them off the playstations and get them actually in something that makes a bit of proper noise and you know and you can feel it going around a corner and all that sort of stuff. And I think that they'll just follow suit. Absolutely. Well, of course, if you are a younger Jaguar enthusiast and you're listening to this podcast and you're not a member yet of the JEC, do join because, as Tom mentioned there, we've got the young enthusiast sector of the club, but also the JEC has just launched its own insurance scheme uh, that is administered by Peter James. And within that insurance scheme, there is a provision through the club membership to get access to competitive insurance for any Jaguar up to the value of £50,000 from the age of 19 onwards. This is insurance cover you can't get of your own accord out in the wide world, but you can get it through the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. And it's really important to the club, as Tom says, that we encourage younger generations to look after these cars because ultimately they're more important than all of us. And we are just the custodians as they pass through from one owner to the next. And Sorry, Wayne, I don't mean to interrupt you, but did you you just tell me that I can... Well, my daughter's 18, she's 19 next year, and I was. she likes the classic cars. You're telling me that I can get a good deal on insuring her on my classics? Is that what you're telling me? I'm telling you exactly that. Good news, isn't it? 
Well, yeah, because my 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 uh, insurer, or bad news, depending on how you look at it, really. <laughs> well, no, I love my insurer. I spoke to my insurers and I said to them, my daughter's da 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 da, and all the rest of it. Um, and um, they told me that I had to wait till she was twenty five years old before I could put her as a name driver on my classic car policy. Jaguar Enthusiast Club Insurance, Tom. That's all you need in your life. Talk to the guys down there. Gary Carlin, Dave Youngs is the man right. who runs our scheme, and he's always very keen to talk to genuine Jaguar enthusiasts who yeah. come from a genuine background, um, especially if there's a family in the club or if they can demonstrate genuine enthusiasm or involvement in the community, then there mm. should be no problems at all. There are a few things like how many convictions you've got and you can only allow to have it for social use and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, if you yeah. satisfy those things, uh, there should be no reason why your daughter shouldn't be driving your Jaguars come her 19th birthday. Right. Oh, well, that's cool. Yeah. It's, it's good stuff <laughs> happening here at the Jaguars. <laughs> I'm not sure this is a good or a bad thing long term. We'll find <laughs> out. There you go. I look forward to seeing her thrashing it around a track sport event very yeah, soon, Tom, yeah, you I'm, see. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good. And, and you're doing your bit because what you're doing and as you've just described is that you're welcoming customers into your business with an x type that they've paid 1500 quid for whatever yep. and you're treating them in the same way that you would treat someone who brings in a series one flat floor e-type and the great thing that's happening there is as you described people are coming in they're nosing around your workshop they're seeing the older cars and i always think things like the x type the s type those cheaper Jaguars, my XJ40 was the best car ever. Uh, my X300 wasn't fat, uh, too bad either. Um, but they are the gateway drug, as I call them, to discovering this world of heritage Jaguars that sit behind them. And whilst you might not be able to afford one yet, at least it starts to spark the interest, doesn't it? I think the one of the best Jags ever made not that I want them flocking into my workshop because they're a pain to fix, <laughs> <laughs> is a, a, a very late V12 XJ40. Yes. What an amazing car. Yes. You know, and this was in the time period where people understood that you don't need low profile tyres. I want to waft down the road in that car, you know, and we've got, you know, we've got plenty of air between you and the road. And I do think I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not anti-modern cars, but I'm, I'm a little bit anti low profile tyres on, um, on what I would call luxury cars, because I think it spoils the ride. Well, we've but had you, this Nürburgring illness, haven't we? Where every manufacturer correct. seems to think that the time round the Nürburgring is what sells their cars. But the problem with that is they've all turned into track day weapons. <laughs> Every single X100 that I've owned myself and had on the road has turned up. I've always bought the, you know, the R's with 20-inch wheels and the Brembo brakes and all the rest of it. And the first thing I've done is I've taken the 20-inch wheels off. I've put some wheel spaces on it so I can put a set of 18s on it um, just to take the harshness out of the ride and makes it a much, much more nicer, usable daily car. And it will still go around the corner quick with 18-inch wheels on, I mm. promise you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and it's a weird car in history because, of course, the Series 3 XJ6, or XJ12, I should say, was yep. still being made concurrently to the XJ40 because they couldn't quite figure out it's how to the get kid. the V12 in. Put it in, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I'm sure that was something to do with the British Leyland guys not wanting to put the Rover V8 in at some point. There's some kind of <laughs> mythical story like that. But then all of a sudden, they managed it and an XJ40 for a tiny, tiny amount of time 
time was available as a V12. And I think there was a Daimler double six version, all the picnic tables in the back as well, wasn't there? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, there was. Yeah, six litre engine, just magnificent. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Still on eBay for hardly any money. That's the great thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, very Absolutely. true. Yeah. Well, let's go back to 1989, if we can. <laughs> and uh, a little bit kind of like uh, Life on Mars, if anyone liked that TV programme. We'll get back into a time vortex and we'll wake up in 1989 where Sir John Egan, the man who had saved Jaguar through the 1980s, the man who had taken Jaguar to its independence from those dark days at British Leyland, had done the deal with Ford to become a major shareholder. Uh, about eight years later, of course, in the 1990s, Ford would take ownership of Jaguar and, of course, they would develop their X300 XJ6 models onwards and launch the X-Type and S-Type. Now, there was a naughty and nasty thing that the journalists in the automotive press used to say of the X-Type, and that was that it was a Mondeo in drag, mm. or a Mondeo in a posh dress. But, of course, we know slightly better than that. And I know you have a particular expertise, Tom, in the commonality or otherwise of the Ford bits that were bolted to Jaguars and how much of a Jaguar was a Ford from that era. And we must, first of all, mark out the fact that we love Jaguars from this era. We're not going to start knocking them, first of all. And secondly, this was an amazing time for Jaguar because through the doldrums of the 1990s, the recessions, the, the tough gig they had selling the last of the XJ40s and the next X300s, XJ6s, they suddenly emerged from a chrysalis in around 2000 and started to sell real volumes of cars again. And of course, for the first time since the 1960s, they had a small saloon, the X-Type. Uh, and of course, the S-Type would follow as well. A really important time. They are now bona fide modern classics, especially S-Type R's, very sexy, I have to say. Firstly, let's debunk some of the myths about the shared parts across the Jaguar range of that era that were nicked off Fords. Uh, let's start with the X-Type, first of all. Was it really a Mondeo in drag? Um, no. Yes and no. I mean, look, you can't get away from the fact that in that period in time, Jaguar as a sole company couldn't afford the R&D. It, it wouldn't have worked. So with Ford behind them, using Ford's technology and Ford's influence for, with all the stuff that they'd already developed, you would have to be absolutely nuts not to use it. It would just, you know, so, so I don't have a problem with the fact that, yes, there was quite a lot of Ford influence and quite a lot of Ford parts. I mean, you know, particularly the electronic modules and stuff like that, we, we would literally take them out and it would have Ford stamped on them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yes, there was a lot of Fords there. But have you, when was the last time you drove uh, uh, a, a Mondeo? You know, I don't care what anyone says. I drove a Mondeo in the uh, early 2000s and I drove an X-Type and their chalk and cheese. Mm. And that is because the Jaguar engineers got their hands on it. They got given a, a parts box, let's say. Yeah. And then they refined, 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 refined and turned it into a car that every discerning Jaguar owner wanted. You know, and you, the sales figures in the UK were really good at the time for um, X-Type and S-Type. So, yes, there was a lot of forward influence there. I still think it was a really good, uh, a really good package, and you know there is no way that 
um, what Ford did with those parts in the, the Mondeo compared to what Jaguar did with them in the X-Type, you could say that they were the same car and, and, and they, did, they just simply weren't. The styling took Jaguar into a new era. Of course, Jeff Lawson was the stylist of the S-Type. And it was a kind of an era as well where British motoring was going through some kind of midlife crisis almost. Because at the same time, you had the Rover 75, which was almost a competitor of the S-Type. And both of them... had one of those. (laughs) But they they kind of both harked back to a bygone era in their styling, didn't they? The S-Type looked as much like a 60s S-Type as it dared do in 2001. Um, But Jeff Lawson came along with a saloon of the X-Type and kept the family look and the family traits of Jaguar that it had developed throughout the late 90s into that compact saloon and then of course we saw uh, the young and new designer at Jaguar come through of course Ian Callum who would go on to really big things uh, with the F-Type some 10 years later. So if you're buying one of these cars now it's great because they represent a particular point in Jaguar's history, uh, a celebratory point in Jaguar's history, I think. Keeping them on the road can be a challenge because some of those parts from Jaguar have been discontinued. So how many of the bits can we find in the Ford parts catalogue that might not be advertised as Jaguar bits that we could perhaps buy? <laughs> well, you know, that's a really good question. And, you know, the honest answer is, is, you know, there's a few bits of switch gears and, you know, like interior parts, which, are, you know, straight out of um, straight out of Ford. But that's, that's no different to a, an Aston Martin DB7. I mean, crumbs, you know, the, yeah. the window switches a Ford Mondeo or whatever, the Sierra or whatever it was at the time. Um, but I've personally never gone down the road of saying, right, that's a direct Ford part. You know, let's go and buy a, a Ford one because there's such an abundance of, parts availability but you know new and second hand we're definitely not running out of parts for x types s types and stuff like that so there you know there really is there really is no need i mean the, the suspension parts are quite um you know some of the suspension parts are a little bit generic uh, but again i've never felt the need to delve into the ford parts catalog to see because there's such great availability with um with you know some of the people some of the companies that are out there that we use so it's not yeah that they are ford parts but you really don't need to you don't need to delve into that side of it because it's just just not necessary yeah and as you say you know whilst they they both shared that uh, cd132 shows how much of a geek i am uh platform which is basically yeah a molding isn't it let's face it it's it, it doesn't have a separate chassis but it's basically the bottom of the body shell onto which the rest of the body shell is created it's that kind of floor pan if you like um in the same way that the db7 shared the floor pan of the xjs so and it kind of stops and it starts and ends there, really, in the relationship yeah. between a Mondeo and an X-Type. So it's kind of worth buying Jaguar bits because then you retain the Jaguar feel, even if they do fit, let's be honest. I mean, as a as a great example, I was driving a, a V12 XJS today, a six-litre one, 94. Um, and then 10 minutes later, I was driving a 2003 uh, V12 Aston Martin DB7. Mm-hmm. I know that they basically share an awful lot of parts, suspension, et cetera, et cetera, but they both drive dramatically differently, mm-hmm. you know, and just like 
an X-type does compared to a, a Mondeo, et cetera. You know, so they're, they're, they are they, they are shared components, yeah, but they're they're dramatically they're dramatically different in in the way they perform and drive, and their suspension is different in terms of setup, etc. So, but again, as I said before, I don't I don't really hold any of this against Ford because you know they, they would be mad to completely start again when they've got all these really good basis of parts there. You know. The, the, from a development point of view, you'd be bonkers. And we're still in that situation today where, you know, we all drive around in, most of our cars have got ZF gearboxes in in our world. Mm. You know, and those ZF gearboxes, they're using BMWs, they're used in, you know, why, why does everyone need to make a gearbox? Well, we've got a perfectly good one there that everyone can use, so why mm. not? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, ultimately, it comes down to this. In the 1990s, if you take the X300, which was... I think a success for Jaguar. I think everyone would agree that the X300 was a great XJ6, the last of the line in terms of those that ran with the straight six uh, engine. They sold just over 90,000 of them. Uh, by the time they got to 2001 and they launched the X-Type, by the end of the X-Type's run in 2009, they'd sold just over 350,000 of those. Yeah. And that is the fundamental difference. Ultimately, Jaguar is a company that now needs to sell stuff and make money, you know, uh, and that's what they're there for. And that was what turned them around throughout the early 2000s and gave us great cars, great designs uh, like the F-Type, which, of course, celebrates its 10th anniversary this year. So, um, yeah, a great part of the story. And it's great to see it through your eyes, Tom, as someone who works on these cars. Well, I mean, look, when I walked into the main dealer, we had a two-car range. That was it. Amazing. Anyway, it was it was XJS and, um, you know, an X300 had come out along then. And then obviously then it was then XJS was then replaced by XK8. So, you know, it was, that, that was it. You had a choice of two, you know, when you think back to the, uh, sixties, um, you know, you had a, you had a much greater variety of cars. So really, I think all they were really doing was, you know, trying to expand the range and give a more, you know, a more broader, get a more broader customer base. And again, we talk about the age of people. I remember when I first started at the main dealer, our average age of our customer was 55 years old. Mm. Um, by the time X-Type and S-Type came out, you know, we had, um, you know, not only did we have younger people coming in the door, we actually had females coming in on a regular basis buying mm. cars, which is something that hadn't happened for a long time. Mm. So, you know, that was, a, that was another big shift um, that we noticed uh, when we were working in the main dealer. There was, uh, you know, when we were putting the floor mats and the seat covers in the car for service. And they would, you know, instead of there being a pipe there, there might actually be a, a stick of lipstick. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. The flat cap pipe smoking uh, yeah. stereotype had gone out the window. I, I yeah, think no, probably definitely. Jaguar in the same place now, aren't they? When you think about it, because they've got a very limited range. They're in this kind of period of stasis, I would say at the moment where the I pace is becoming old, although it's a great EV, the F pace, E pace kind of weird cars to sit in the market. They share dealerships with Land Rover quite often, especially in the U S. So you kind of got to ask yourself why, if you're after an SUV, you would walk past all the Land Rover products and go and buy an F pace or an E pace. Thank goodness. Some of us did, um, but they're kind of in a weird place. And I guess just like the nineties, they've got to now reevaluate their model range, increase it and come up with a new family for Jaguar. I mean, I definitely think they're going through a, uh you know, going for a period of change again, just like, 
we've explained in the you know in the early 2000s you know they 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 started implementing this clearly when ford came along um pushed it forward and took us through into the you know into the millennium with a, a new range and a and a clear plan forward and i think that that's kind of what they're having to do again because it's you know i never i do understand why jaguar built suvs but I, I, i'm guilty of it as well you know if you're going to have a luxury four by four and buy a range rover mm. you know that's you know they've been around for donkey's years although i get in an f pace and an i pace and they're great cars they are there's nothing wrong with them but we all you know we saloon people don't want saloon cars quite as much as they uh, did in the past mm. and i can understand why um but they definitely need to you know they need a clear plan going forward if um you know if they're going to you know keep up the sales numbers and the sales figures they need and hopefully you know with the introduction of um some new staff at the top end which we know has recently happened um you know that that's going to start happening mm. crystal ball prediction for you then tom in mm-hmm. 30 years time when you're Sir Tom Lenthal and the <laughs> business yeah, right, is, yeah. <laughs> when his business is huge and you're a multimillionaire and um, your business would have evolved with the changing needs of the classic Jaguar owner of the day, do you think that you'll have a bunch of technicians downstairs working on classic Jaguar EVs replacing iPace batteries? Or do you think the EVs are not going to make it into the world of classic cars? What's your prediction? I just don't think EVs are going to make it long-term full stop, really. Um, I I think that my workshop will continue to do classic cars um, and it will continue to do modern cars in whatever guise that that, you know, ends up being. I think the whole EV debate and, you know, synthetic fuels and hydrogen engines is, you know, we've got a long way to go with this. I mean, you know, it's no different to what it was 20 plus years ago when we all said, you know, diesel's amazing. We're all going to, you know, have these, we're going down the diesel route. And then uh, then suddenly we decided that actually maybe long-term, this is not the way to go. And I think we're going for exactly the same thing with batteries now. I, I think, unfortunately, it's not, we need an answer to the problem. Clearly, we need an answer to the problem. Um, I just don't think that battery cars and the increased cost of buying battery cars and uh, all right, the running costs are low, but God, the repair costs are huge when the mm. batteries go wrong. And there's there's so many. I, I could talk about, you know, electric cars till you're blue in the face. I've just, I really, really, really want them to work. And if they take off and they solve the problems, we'll put the technology in the workshop and we'll fix them. We already have them coming in. We do hybrids. I've had electric cars in here and we can do 90% of the jobs on them. There's only certain things we can't do because I'm not ready to invest in the equipment because there's not enough of it there. Mm. So whichever way the market takes us, we'll stay on the pace and we'll, we'll continue doing it. But we will definitely always, as long as I'm sat here in this office, be fixing E-types and XK150s, etc. Well said. Well, there was a supplier who will remain nameless on this podcast over Christmas who ran a sale. You could get 15% off batteries for iPaces, and they were reduced way down to £38,000 each. And I know a modern engine is no cheap thing to replace either, but yeah. wow. I mean, if, unless those prices come down, these cars are going to be scrap, and how environmentally friendly will that be? It's all challenges for the future. Yeah. Uh, debates that we can have on this podcast for many years, no doubt. Yeah. You know, I've 
I've had this conversation with many people. Um, we had one gentleman in here, not with a Jaguar, actually with a Range Rover, and his battery went down, and his motor went down on a hybrid, and it was uh, £30,000 to fix it on a six-year-old car. And, um, you know, I believe, unless it's changed, I believe on an iPACE, the battery warranty is seven years now, I believe. Mm. I think it was six years and they moved it to seven. But once that warranty's run out, you just said the price of a battery. Yeah. So who in their right mind is going to go and buy a five, six-year-old iPace? Yeah, yeah, it's a real problem. And we're saying these things not because we have anything against EVs or anything against the iPace. We're saying it from a point right. of concern because yeah. we want to see a fresh supply of classic Jaguars. The iPace really is a classic Jaguar already. It represents a, a new era, a dawning of something amazing and fresh for Jaguar. And it would be lovely to think that they're still going to be around in 40 to 50 years' time. But unless these problems change, we're going to really struggle, aren't we? Yeah. I'm not anti-EV, uh, but I... I am definitely anti-disposable society. Mm. I think and that's, that is our biggest problem for all of us going forward, you know, from a green point of view. You know, and this coming from someone who races cars and burns lots of fuel might seem a little bit, you know, uh, a bit of a silly thing to say. But, you know, I love the fact that, you know, I've got, you know, 70-year-old cars. You know, and we're now talking about building cars that, you know, after possibly six or seven years, you know, are no longer going to be financially viable to keep on the road. And this isn't a Jaguar problem. This is a industry problem. Mm. Yes, absolutely. If we all have EVs, fine. But if we're changing them for brand new cars every three years, that's going to be just as damaging on the environment. Yeah, and ultimately, be- we are the sexiest example of make, do and mend you've ever seen in classic <laughs> yeah, cars, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can't say, in a way, you know, in, in, in a bizarre way, you know, in my workshop, we are doing our bit for the environment by keeping these older vehicles alive. And, uh, and the other thing I also really encourage my um, customers to do with the older cars is, um, you know, I understand if you've got a really, really beautiful uh, classic car sat in the garage and you polish it and you go out there with your glass of wine, you look at it and you go, wow, that's fantastic. But please, you know, occasionally put your modern car down and actually, you know, do, do a cut of 3,000 miles a year in it, do 5,000 miles a year in it. You know, you should. My prediction is big things for Tom Lenthal in the future. That was why it's so important to have you here on the JC podcast. We've got other stuff to talk about, Tom, uh, but Mm -hmm. we'll do it on another episode because I want to come down. I want to see what you've done to Harry Metcalf's car. I want to poke and prod it. I want to hear all about the stuff that you're doing to resto mod and to improve classic Jaguars. Uh, But that will be on another episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. So for now, Tom Lenthal, thanks for joining us. No worries, Wayne. It's been fantastic fantastic really enjoyed it and uh yeah get those classics out that's what i say That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JC Podcast via www.jcpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic glossy 130 page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC this is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast 
Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com. Hold up. 